0: As you now know, this week was Vacation Bible School, which we abbreviated to VBS in case you were curious. And uh, during that week, we tried to teach every year, one of the goals is to teach the story of everything, right? And we've said that this story of everything, one of the the rubric under which we put it was uh, in four parts. Creation, God made everything good. Fall, man disobeyed God in favor of doing what he wanted instead of what God wanted. Uh, redemption, that Jesus came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead. And then uh, restoration, and that's the k- kind of the space in between redemption and restoration is where we live and continue in our faith together. And if you get those four parts, you kind of have uh, the gospel in a nutshell, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're curious about how to communicate that uh, more clearly to your friends or you're just interested in learning a little bit more about the gospel, there's a green book by that title in the back. Please take one and, and read and enjoy it. Um, but as it relates to the story of everything we used our rubric to kind of put the gospel in a nutshell and we also used the book of colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 in particular to talk about the gospel we we've, we've summed up the gospel we've summed up the story of everything in a person that person is jesus christ and that's going to be the main idea of our text this morning which is colossians chapter 1 and not only verse 15 but uh, we're going to read verses 15 on down Through verse 23. And we're going to see here that Paul argues Jesus is the key to understanding the story of humanity. Jesus is the secret to understanding the meaning of life, to understanding all that exists and all that is. And so the exhortation this morning will be to put your faith in this Jesus. Let's pray. We'll look at the context and get into the text together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to us this morning, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give me eloquence of speech, that you would give us humbleness of hearts that we might hear from you. Lord, what we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. And we ask that you would be honored in this time. Amen. Just a little bit of context in Colossians. Paul is writing to a church that he's never actually been to. Uh, he ministered to a guy, and this guy went back home to uh, the city of Colossus, I think is how it's pronounced. I'm not great at pronouncing it, but, but Coloss. And he shared his faith, and, and a church got started up there. But what has happened is some false teaching has come into the church, and so Paul is writing to them to correct this false teaching, which really revolves around one question. Who, who is Jesus? They've kind of said, is Jesus enough, or do we need to do something else with our faith? We need to have Jesus and this or that. So we can maybe hold on to some of our other religious practices, some of our other deities, and have Jesus also. Is is that cool as we move forward in our faith? And Paul is writing to tell them unequivocally, no. Jesus is all you need. And in our particular uh, pericope this morning, 15 through 23, Paul is going to argue that Jesus is the fullness of God and that he's the only one that can fill up their every need, that that Jesus is all they need and and nothing more, that he is unique in his person and his worth, and he's able to save them and he alone is able to save them. So if you see there, uh, just kind of uh, to help you as we work through this section in your bulletin, I gave you a whole page, and it says the the hypostatic union on a page. The hypostatic union is a really fancy theological phrase to talk about the person of Jesus. And, And what it is speaking to is the union between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature. That is that when Jesus became a man, he never stopped being the eternal triune God. Right? He never ceased to be God. But he became what he was not. A person. And you can kind of see that in your diagram with the circles. Uh, The one circle has uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and that represents our uh, triune God of the universe. Three persons. One God. And then you have God the Son, who also becomes the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. And so the union of Jesus' human and divine natures in one person is what this doctrine speaks to. And this doctrine is paramount in Christianity. Uh, Without it, or by denying it, you have something other than the Christian faith. Because as Christians, we are those who profess that Jesus is the God who made everything and He's the same God who took on flesh, became a man, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose from the dead. Jesus, both God and man. And it is a marvelous and mysterious and awesome teaching we get to see a little bit of it in these verses. The first few verses, verses 15 through 17, will hold Jesus up as the creator of the universe, as God. And then verses 18 on down through 23, we'll get to see a little bit more of his humanity, that he became one of us. And so let's look at verse 15. He, that's Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is striking. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I I think sometimes it's hard for us to think about God because uh, He is invisible. Uh, I always think of a little girl sitting with uh, her parents and saying, you know, is is God in this room if He's everywhere? Is He in this room right now? And Mom's saying, yes. And they say, well, if God's in this room, is he, is he on this table? And mom's saying, well, well yes, he, he's, he's everywhere. Is, is God in this cup? Well, yes, God is, is everywhere. And the little girl looking and acting quickly, flipping the cup over. Got him! We, I think, I think we try to do like the little girl, that because God is invisible, we try to define him into a cup, as it were. Or maybe to put it in more biblical language, uh, make him in our own image. Because God is, is invisible, we, we, we try to make him what we want. I saw this demonstrated excellently and it always stuck with me in a movie I saw not too long ago. And remember, uh, movies I mention are not necessarily endorsements, so don't go away saying that the preacher told us to see this movie. Um, but one of Will Ferrell's great works, uh, he's a comedian, uh, was uh, the movie Talladega Nights. I don't know if you all have seen that one. Uh, but he plays the NASCAR driver, Ricky Bobby, um, which in, it's pretty funny throughout. But there's a scene in the movie uh, where him and his friend at the time are discussing what they think Jesus is like. And his friend comes up with this huge long list of things. like, I like to think of Jesus as a figure skater. Or I like to think of Jesus as a rock star. Or I like to think of Jesus as this or that. And, and some of it's comedic. But then there, there's the irony of it is that I think that that's how people think about Jesus. That, that Jesus becomes whatever we like to think of him as. So that instead of God defining himself, because he's invisible, we feel like we can define him for ourselves. can define him into a cup, make him look like we want him to look. And at the end of the day, he ends up looking a lot like us when we do this. But God has not left himself to be defined by our imaginations or our preferences. Instead, he has revealed himself in his word and most perfectly in the person of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus is the explanation of God. He is the content of God. He he is God's entire self in a person. If you want to see what God is like you look at Jesus this is really hard to get our minds around I think um, but I heard uh, John Piper illustrate it this way this it is if two col- college friends come together and they're talking about uh, a friend they think they have in common and they realize like he has the same name and that they might be talking about the same guy and, Oh, he does this and he does that and, and so let's determine if this if we're talking about the same person and so they go back and they get their yearbook out and they open up the yearbook and they find his picture and say, this is the guy. And one of them says, well, that's, that's not who I'm talking about. Jesus is the one who shows us the picture of God. So that when we speak of God, we can know what he's like by looking at Jesus rather than trying to define him ourselves. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see what the Father is like, Jesus tells Philip in John 14, you can just look at me. I'm paraphrasing there. So you walked with me forever. You don't know. You still don't know me. God became a person. That's one of the unique claims of Christianity. That we worship a a person like, like us. And this has to be true. God has to be both, I'm sorry, Jesus has to be both God and man in order to atone for sin. He has to be God in order to exhaust the wrath of God against an infinite number of people. And he has to be a human so that he can substitute for human lives. Hebrews 2.17 puts it this way, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus becomes our representative. He's human like us. And he's also divine. He is the unique God-man. And he is worthy of our worship the second part of verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is a statement, this word firstborn is a statement not so much of sequence, though it's true that Jesus precedes all things, he existed eternally, but it's more statement of status, of Jesus's right to inherit all things, of his lordship over all things, that, that he outranks everything, that he is supreme. Psalm chapter 89 verse 27 uses the title of firstborn in relationship to sovereignty. It says this, that God says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Firstborn is a title about Jesus' supremacy. Just like in Jewish times, the the, um, Jewish times as if Jews don't exist anymore. In the first century, uh, the firstborn always inherited all of the wealth. And so this is a a statement of what Jesus stands to inherit. It's a statement about his status. This is is really important um, because some deny that it's a statement of status. They, they, They rip this verse out of its context which is really poor hermeneutical practice and they say we're going to define it ourselves Uh, chief among these groups are the jehovah's witnesses and so they'll use this particular verse about jesus being the firstborn of creation to say see jesus was born right that that he there was a time when god the son did not exist and so this verse undoes your whole trinity thing that's it's not what the verse means Obviously it can't mean that if we just take it in context and then look at some other scriptures. So so let's look at the context first and then we'll we'll see how this works out. So we see Jesus is the image of the invisible God, very God of very God, the firstborn over all creation, a statement of supremacy. How do we know it's a statement of supremacy? Look at verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. And then we have a list of some of the invisible things. All this talk of thrones and dominions and authorities is actually a reference to, they used to like rank angels back in the day, they, these different forms of angels. Don't ask me how it works. Uh, but he's saying, all that is unseen, Jesus has created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him, all things hold together and so if you see on your insert there I've drawn you a little box with the computer not the best work ever but it will suffice so we're gonna we're gonna say we're gonna draw that box and we're gonna title it everything that exists I think I've titled it for you if I remember correctly it's everything that exists and on one side of the box uh, we're going to write things that never came into existence things that just have always existed and on the other side of the box, I think we have written already, but you could write, things that came into existence or that were created. Okay, and we're going we're gonna to remember that verse from Colossians, and we're going to go over to John chapter 1. I'm going to read the first three verses, and we're going to apply it to our box here. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. The Word here eventually is revealed to be Jesus. And so we we could uh, rightly read John 1 that um, in the beginning was the Word, this is Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. And so if we turn our attention to our box and we say all right according to John 1:3 not one thing that exists not one thing that has been created came into being without Jesus being the one who created it. And so instead of listing everything that's ever been created in the first that box on the right, you know, socks and trees and mountains and whatever we're just going to say all created things. And so now the question comes, if, if nothing exists that Jesus didn't create, which box does Jesus go in? Well, he was, if nothing came into existence that he didn't create, that must mean he goes in the God box. They never came into being. That he has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, He is the God-man. We mustn't miss this. He created all that is. And He holds all that is together. Without Jesus, our world would fall apart. did you see that in verse 17? By Him all things hold together. Jesus is kind of a divine glue that holds our whole universe together. In place This is a quick sidebar here. If Jesus can hold all that exists in place, if He holds it all together, you might think he can be able to handle your life. Like He can handle your situation. He holds it all together. He is the God of creation. He, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. Not one thing would exist apart from him. I mean, think about that, that he's created everything. And so let's say um, we, could, we could build a little rocket ship that traveled really, really fast and in seconds be wherever we wanted to be in the universe. You can imagine it like this since we have a rocket ship up here. Um, and so we, we get in our little rocket ship and we take a trip off of the earth and we go to Saturn jupiter and eventually we find ourselves at the the fringes of our solar system on pluto which i guess isn't a planet anymore I i don't know how that works maybe it is in my mind it is i was taught it was a planet but but we get off on the planet of pluto and we look out and realize that we are just on the porch of all that god has created i mean there are billions more galaxies space seems to go on without end And the God who created all of that is revealed in the person of Jesus. Have you ever thought about just the fine-tuning of our galaxy? Like, if the Earth's, or I'm sorry, if gravity was one trillionth of a percentage different, the universe would either collapse on itself or if it was a trillionth of a percentage different in the other direction, it would expand infinitely and nothing would ever coalesce. Jesus holds it all together. love astronomer at Cambridge, Fred Hoyle, said, The odds of us being an accident of nature are comparable to the likelihood of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. The odds are so small as to be negligible. And he's an atheist, mind you. Jesus has created all of this. And he holds it together right now. Jesus is the agent of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. All things find their source in him. During VBS week, we talked about this part of the rubric as creation, that Jesus created. And in creating, he began a relationship with humanity, that he created us for relationship uh, with him, our God, and with one another. But the second night of VBS, the second part of our rubric, we saw the relationship broken, what theologians commonly refer to as the fall. And and if you've cheated and looked through our text here in Colossians a couple times, you've seen the word reconcile. It probably jumps off the page at you, and it's there because Jesus came in order to reconcile us to God. Because there was something wrong in our relationship. I think verse 21 captures it well. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, We become evil just as our first father had done evil. You guys remember the story probably in Genesis 3. God has created all things. Everything is is very good. Man has all that he could possibly want. He has dominion over all of creation. He's in charge of all these animals. And there is one rule that he has to follow. And it has to do with a tree that's at the center of the garden. And the tree is there to remind him that even though he functions as God's vice-regent on earth, that there is still an authority above his own, that he's still accountable to another. The tree serves as a reminder, and it also serves as a place of judgment. Love, Greg Gilbert points this out in his uh, little red book called Who is Jesus? Available to you in the back for free, take one. He writes this, the first readers of Genesis would have realized immediately that to know good and evil was the typical job of a judge in Israel. It meant that the judge would discern good from evil and then hand down decisions that reflected those realities. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, therefore, was a place of judgment. And so it's at this place of judgment that all of God's structures, his authority structure, begins to be subverted by the lowest of the animals, and that's intentional. Satan takes the form of a, ser- of a serpent in order to overthrow all of these structures that God has put in place. If you remember, God has said, I am the supreme authority. Adam, I have put you and your wife in charge of the garden. She is your helper. And so what what Satan does is he he goes and picks the lowest form of animals, And then he doesn't talk to Adam, but to Eve. He begins tempting her towards breaking this law by eating the fruit of the tree. Now she's not freaked out by the snake talking, um, which, you know, I I don't know if that was normal or not normal. (laughs) Uh, If it wasn't normal, you would think she at that point would have gone, this isn't a great idea, talking snake. But he begins tempting her. Look how good this fruit is. And in a moment, she takes the fruit and she shares it with her husband, and they eat. And this simple act of eating is an act of cosmic treason. It is an act of rebellion. It is Adam and Eve saying, we we don't want to be like God. We want to be God. God. It's Satan's overthrowing of all of the authority structures that in place. The animal of the serpent controls the actions of the woman, who then controls the actions of her husband, who then thinks that he's going to get away with it as they hide from God. And God says, This is awful as he looks for them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? You guys remember the story. They're hiding in their shame. And God, because he is just, curses the man and the woman and throws them out from the garden. Their sin ushers, ushers sin ushers sin and suffering and death and pain into the world. No longer is man at peace with God. No, instead he has become estranged to God. Alien to him. We, because we inherit the sin of Adam and Eve, become to God like uh, the little green aliens from outer space would become to us. Strange. They don't belong here. But not just strange. Hostile. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. And so we're even maybe like the aliens in Independence Day, right? We, We are at war with God. There is no peace there. Beneath the the tree that was to be a reminder of God's authority, beneath the tree of judgment, Adam exercises very poor judgment. And instead of exercising his authority over the created things and crushing the head of the serpent, he capitulates and follows the counsel of the serpent. Together, he and Eve bring death to humanity. They bring death to the world. They bring sickness to God's good creation. And so they find themselves outside of God's good and loving presence. That's where we find ourselves now. It's where the world finds itself. But but even in the midst of God's justice being meted out as he uh, casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, there is a promise it's easy to miss. It's Genesis three, fifteen. God says, as he's cursing the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It's a promise of deliverance. It's a promise that the progeny of Adam and Eve There's a child that will come from Adam and Eve who will do what they were supposed to do. There's a child that will come and overthrow evil. There is a a seed of hope, even in God's cursing of the man and the woman. And if, if you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see the authors, especially in Genesis, are concerned with this promised child that is to come. So the, the, the whole Old Testament is really asking, where is Israel's deliverer? Where is he? You know, is, is it David? No, David's a good king, but he's also a murderer and a rapist. Is, is it Solomon, the king of peace? No, Solomon is a serial adulterer, sinful human being. And so we're, we're constantly confronted with the question, is, is this the one that is to come? And then we get to the Gospels. We read in in Luke chapter 2. And the angel said to them, shepherds in the field, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. What's happened here is the God of Genesis 1 and 2 who has created everything, who holds all things together, has taken on flesh and become a man. Instead of being clothed in the majesty of his creation, he is covered in amnionic fluid in the belly of a virgin girl for nine months. He is born in a cave, placed in an animal's feeding trough. Preposterous. Un- unthinkable. I mean, incomprehensible. This is blasphemous that God would so lower himself. But it's true. This message of the incarnation of God, this message of Christmas is the very bedrock of the Christian faith. Because Christmas is a declaration of war on evil. Christmas, the incarnation, is the way that God is able to be perfectly just and save you and I at the same time. Because our actions deserve death. They deserve eternal punishment. But instead of giving us what we deserve, God comes so that he might give us what only he deserves. Comes As a baby. The links to which God has gone in order to reconcile us to himself show us how much he loves us. God becomes a man. Jesus remains what he has always been, that's God, and becomes what he was not, that's human. He becomes the fullness of God dwelling in a person. See that in Colossians here, in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's Jesus. Paul says it again in Colossians 2.9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God of everything, the Almighty Creator, has become like us. I mean, this is an infinite condescension. I just can't, we can't get our minds around what it would be like to be in perfect glory, perfect relationship with, with the, the Father and, and the Spirit in eternal bliss and to say, I'm going to plunge myself into a pain-stricken world and become a person. It's, it's unthinkable. But it is what God has done for us. The, the Creator enters His creation in order to save us, His creatures. Jesus, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, comes to reconcile us to God. This is the reason for all the the Christmas carols. I'm going to mess up the lines here of this one, but, but, you know, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. There's a line in there, um, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Praise the Incarnate Deity, something deities in there. But they're pointing out this truth that God has taken on flesh and come to us. There's a reason we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. and Heaven and nature sing. Singing because God has come to bring us back to Himself instead of giving us the pain and the suffering and the death that we have earned. That's that's what grace is. That's at the very center of the gospel, that despite our rebellion against the good and mighty King of all that exists, despite our stupid insistence that we are going to rule our own lives, that we are going to be Lord of our lives, God says, no, I'm going to come, even though you've set yourself up as my enemies, and I'm going to live the perfect life that you should have lived in your place, perfectly obedient to God the Father, perfectly submissive to his will. And instead of taking the blessing that would be rightfully mine, I'm going to take your curse and give you the blessing that belongs only to me. When you by faith trust in me as your Lord and Savior. This is how Jesus is the peacemaker. Look at verses 18 through 23 here. Jesus is also the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Jesus brings peace to us, peace with God when we put our faith in Him by substituting Himself for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes hell so that we can have heaven. And where Adam failed at the tree of judgment, tree that stood as a reminder of God's authority in the book of Genesis, where he failed and brought sin and death into the world, Jesus at the cross at another tree of judgment another symbol of God's authority over all things succeeds. He succeeds by dying in our place. Perfectly obedient to God. Jesus destroys death by His death on the cross. It's Amazing, this great exchange that happens, that Jesus takes our sin when we put our faith in him and that we get his righteousness. And it's not not because we do anything, not because we're really good people or because we come to church on Sunday, but because of what Jesus has done. I love that Christianity, what makes it distinct. Uh, a number of things make it distinct, but one of the, my favorite things that makes it distinct from all the other religions of the world is that it says, done rather than do. Your salvation is secure. You need only come in faith. Your doing doesn't earn you favor with God. Jesus has already accomplished peace with God for you. He's the peacemaker. Romans 5.17 talks about this wonderful exchange So, since by the one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through the one man. So death has come to us. It's reigned over all of creation through Adam. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See that? Death reigns in all it still reigns in all those who identify with their sin and who identify with Adam. But to those who receive Christ, those who identify with Jesus, life reigns. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the church. He's already shown us the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come, and we shall be made like him. Already those that are in Christ, those that have passed on before us, are with Him in His presence. But already those bones that lie in tombs are stirring. Already are those coffins creaking in anticipation of Christ's return. When the saints that are with Him now will be given new bodies, and be raised into eternal life, when He makes all things new, when He restores all of creation to its previous glory, when sin no longer infects humanity or God's creation. And creation's pretty glorious now. Just wait. The Bible says that we haven't seen anything yet. That it's better. It's better. This is the nature of grace. Christ takes us out of Adam and places us in Himself. He, he makes those who put their faith in him a new creation. Second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. That's why Christians uh, love that phrase you must be born again, born again. But what that that means is is not that you, as Nicodemus said, entered back into your mother's womb and then got born a second time. What it means is that God gives you a new heart so that instead of desiring the things of the world, instead of following your, your own wants, your own authority, your heart changes so that you want what God wants, so that Jesus becomes the utmost in your affections. It's a call to new life. It's as if you were dead and a swollen corpse at the bottom of the sea and God plucked you out and put you on the beach and breathed life into you. And all of a sudden, all of your uh, sin-soaked bones were animated with the life of the Spirit. and made a new creation. No longer a slave to sin, but now a son of righteousness. Those who have faith bear the image of Jesus rather than the sin-stained image of Adam. Love these verses out of 1 Corinthians 15. They're, They're my favorite funeral verses. Verse 15, verses 47 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. The second man is from heaven. This is Jesus Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Those who remain in Adam will meet the end that Adam met. Their lives will end in death. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven this is is our hope what god does when he takes on flesh is he identifies with us so that we can identify with him so that we might enjoy the fruits of salvation rather than the fruits of our sin I want you to see in the text that, that we are in verses 15 through 17, we see Jesus as uh, the agent and the author of the first creation. And in verses 18 through, through 20, we see him as the agent and the author of the new creation, of the church, of his people. And that's where he, he saves us. saves us out of the world, out of our sin, into the church, into his people. And he puts us on to mission to to let others know of his greatness. Having said all this, Paul now comments in verse 21, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he, that's Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, And are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This note about persevering in the faith. Paul is saying, this is the Jesus you followed. And you can't follow anything else in addition to him. He alone is your source of salvation. And you must be dedicated to Him alone. If you look at all of these verses together, you see uh, this idea of Jesus being first over and over and over again. And that's what Paul is saying. Jesus must be first in your life and He must remain first because that's His proper place. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn of the the dead. Jesus is first in all things. He's supreme over everything, and He alone is worthy of your worship. He alone can bring you peace with God. There is no other way to salvation. You know, he says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." John reiterates that sentiment in First John two twenty three. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Jesus is the one who brokers a peace with God for us. So, how, how do we persevere in the faith? Ensure that we continue to walk with God in our lives. Ensure that we continue to believe in Jesus rather than the counterfeit gods of the world for our hope and our satisfaction. And I think the answer, part of the answer, is, is primarily putting Jesus first. And I think that, that looks like participating in our local church. Certainly part of it will help you persevere. Because remember, in all of our, our study of, of the church, that Jesus is the head of and identifies with, is that, that we are, this local church is like a little embassy of heaven. And its role is to affirm and give shape to our Christianity. And so how do I, part of how I know that I'm a Christian is not just simply that I, I prayed a prayer once and say that I believe, but that I'm bearing out the fruit of that salvation amongst the people of God who have also put their arm around me and said, yes, brother, you are making a proper confession. You are a Christian. You are walking with Jesus. It's just the church, the, the local church, that puts their arms around me and says, let me fulfill Galatians 6 for you, carry your burdens with you, and help you persevere in the faith. It it is the local church who who puts their arms around us when we are struggling, when we are suffering. And says, just brother, sister, there is a resurrection coming. There's nothing wrong with your life right now that a good resurrection will not fix. Endure. The way you will endure in the faith, one of the ways you know that you are in the faith is that you participate in the local church with God's people. I always say it this way, that uh, your inclusion in the big C church, that's everybody that's a Christian anywhere, is evidenced by your participation in the local church. Because your belief will bear itself out in your behavior. You you live what you believe. You want to persevere? Plant your life in a church, with the people of God. Love them and love Jesus together. Part of how you love Jesus is loving them. So the First John 1.7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Part of the evidence that we have fellowship with God is our fellowship with one another. And it's in our fellowship with one another that we exhort one another to endure, to persevere. And, and so ultimately, though, what holds us together in uh, this local church, what holds us together in our Christian life is is not, not the greeting, right? You come and maybe somebody greets you nicely most of the time, I hope. But, but if you're coming because you like the nice greeting, probably not the best. There will come a time when you get a greeting you don't like, right? Where you been? Wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. The greeting will fail you. If you come, uh, the music won't help you persevere in your faith because there will be songs that that you don't like. If you come for, for the preaching, that certainly won't help you persevere in your faith because it's not always going to be the best. There'll be letdowns. No, no. What will help you persevere in the faith is if Jesus is first in your heart. If you are about loving Jesus above all else, you will plug yourself into loving his people. That's part of how we love God. And so when you come to church, when you come to this assembly, the question will not be, like, what can I get from the greeting or the worship songs or or the preaching? The the question will be, what, what can I give to the glory of God? How can I, together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, honor God together? What has God spoken to us in His Word? I love His Word. So even if the preaching is bland, if it's from the Bible and it's faithful, I, I love it. Love for Jesus is what will cause you to persevere in your faith until the end. Jesus is the key to understanding the story of everything. He is the centerpiece of the universe. He holds all things together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. And He's not only the Creator God, He's the Creator God who became a man. And He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place, preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so here's the the gospel, here's the story of everything in a person. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, it's all summed up in Jesus. And what you do with Jesus will determine the rest of your life, the rest of your eternity. You'll either submit to Him as Lord or you will continue in Adam's rebellion against Him. But I implore you to understand human history, to understand the story of everything, understand why you exist, and give Him your life. Follow Him. He is the God who became like you and died for you so that you might have peace with Him. That is amazing grace. That could cause you, should cause you, to sing for joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You love us and imperfect and messy people, that You've brought us together by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you love us even when we're unlovely. We thank you that Christianity is a religion of done rather than do. that we can know we have been made right with you through our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to live out our faith with one another in fellowship. You have given us all good things, Lord, we pray that we would never forget this good news. That Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, so that by faith in Him we can have the certain hope that like Him we also shall rise from the dead into eternal life and peace with you. Thank you for your grace, for giving us everything we don't deserve. You are so good to us. You are our good and mighty King, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.